I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. I'm Hannah McGregor. And this is a very special podcast episode where I'm going to share with you both a audio excerpt of my new book, A Sentimental Education, as well as the audio recording of the book launch. The audio that you're about to hear was recorded on October 22nd at Iron Dog Books in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, which is the traditional and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This is a conversation between myself and Manel Matani and Lucia Lorenzi. I will include a little bit more information about both of them in the show notes that accompany this episode. And it was recorded by my dear friend, Christopher M. Turbulence, aka Marshall Watson. But before we get into the recorded launch, I want to share a short five-minute excerpt of the forthcoming audiobook version of A Sentimental Education, recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. So if you do like the sound of my voice, which, you know, you're listening to this, so maybe you do, then uh, maybe you'll also enjoy hearing me read my own book. So without any further ado, here is a short excerpt from A Sentimental Education. I was raised on sentimentality. Girl heroines whose pluck and imagination and capacity for care elevated them above other girls in a world where girlhood itself had no innate value, and instead made them remarkable, noteworthy. I was raised on Pride and Prejudice's Elizabeth Bennet and Anne of Green Gables' Anne Shirley and Little Women's Joe March, on The Little Mermaid's Ariel and Beauty and the Beast's Belle, all queer girls just a little out of step with the world around them. 
prone, as I was, to bookishness and flights of imagination and perhaps to an unbecoming surplus of feeling that somehow convinced them, despite the restraints of their worlds, not to settle, not to comply, to, quote, want much more than this provincial life, end quote. Note one. And they were rewarded, these plucky girls, who were all, it would take me years to realize, white, by beauty and marriage and some level of material comfort. I recognized myself, a precociously smart white girl, in these heroines, and also knew that their story would not be my story until I solved the central problem of me, which was my fatness. Being fat can be radicalizing if you let it, but sometimes it takes a while. I had a youthful conviction that I, too, had the stuff of a sentimental heroine buried beneath the body I'd been taught to think of as not me, but a thing I must be liberated from. This conviction was amplified by the domestic tragedy I lived through for most of my youth. My mother was diagnosed with cancer when I was eight and died by suicide at the age of 44 when I was 16. As much as I was shaped by my mother, by the person she was, I was also shaped by the fact of her death and the stories I told myself to try to make sense of it. I begin here with my body and with my mother because these are the objective facts about me. I'm beginning with the objective, what I have observed, recorded, experienced, this is how Menelani Aluli Meyer, a scholar of indigenous Hawaiian epistemologies, explains objectivity as something located in the body. Quote, body is a synonym for external, objective, literal, sensual, empirical. End quote. The objective is what we can count. I had one mother, and then I had none. We were four, and then we were three. What comes next the subjective, the mind, is how we make sense of what we have observed. This is what I call theory, and what Aluli Meyer calls, quote, logic, rationality, intelligence, conceptualization, end quote. We err when we mistake subjectivity for objectivity. When we begin with the interpretation and pretend that it isn't an interpretation at all, but a statement of fact, when we begin with the theory and discard any experiences, especially those of marginalized peoples, that don't fit. But theories are damned seductive, and they can make the raw stuff of experience hurt a whole lot less. The first theory I learned was the stories that taught me how to reframe my mother's sickness and death as sentimental. One of my favorite songs as a child was I Dreamed a Dream, Fontaine's heart-rending ballad from the musical Les Miserables. Les Mis, as it's referred to by fans, was the first musical my mother took me to. We owned the original cast recording on cassette, and on long summer afternoons we'd pitch a tent in the backyard and listen to it on our portable cassette player. In the musical, an adaptation of a Victor Hugo novel that I have absolutely never read, Fontaine is a young woman with an illegitimate daughter she supports by working in a factory. When the lascivious foreman discovers that she is sending her wages to an innkeeper and his wife who are raising her daughter, Cosette, she is fired, and after selling her hair and teeth, 
eventually turns to sex work. In my childish memory, it is unclear that anything more specific than generalized tragedy leads to her death. I would play I Dreamed a Dream on the piano, singing along and crying as I imagined my mother speaking the words, quote, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, end quote. It's me. I'm back again. This is just the bit where I segue into, now we're going to listen to the launch. Okay, here goes. I feel like we're about to do like an acoustic set. Oh, that's we're going to scat. I will beatbox for you if you want. Oh, that would be great. Just like, uh, Thank goodness I'm wearing shorts. Because <laughs> this dress is see-through. I love it. It is. Mm. Yes. Thank y'all. I love it. Oh, oh, I gotta look at the jumpsuit. Oh my god, look at the I love this. Oh, I have to keep up with you. And also a button back. We the photo shoot will include oh, shots from the back. Yeah. Back. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. Incredible. Okay. Let's do this thing. Right. Ready? Yeah. Yep. Okay, hi everybody. Um, these mics record and don't amplify, so can the folks in the back hear us? Me. You can hear me. They're both teachers. They'll be allowed to. Yeah, they can do it. It's true. Um, I have confidence. Thanks so much, everybody, for being here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, all, you probably already know, oh, I think you all know me. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Hannah McGregor. Um, I want to start off by thanking Hillary for hosting this launch, this first in-person sit-down event at Iron Dog that I said, yeah, absolutely, let's put a bunch of people in a room, let's see, everybody wear masks and just be, just be chill. (laughs) Everybody's being chill, right? Great, incredible, thank you, I really appreciate it. Um... I'm really excited to launch this book and what I really, really wanted to do for this event was have a conversation because that for me is sort of at the heart of all of this work. So I invited my friends and colleagues, Manel Matani and Lucia Lorenzi. Oh my God, your names are both alliterative. I just (laughs) realized that. Absolutely incredible. Um, to come and have a conversation with me. And we had a pre-meeting for our meeting on Monday, and they said, do you want us to surprise you? And I said, no, okay. So (laughs) I don't actually know what we're about to do. So It's going to be crazy up in here. Yeah, we might. there might be some interpretive dance. There's probably not going to be any interpretive dance, huh? Yeah, you never know. Things could get wild. Things could get wild. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to Sophie. The youngest person in attendance. Yeah, we don't know how long Sophie's going to last, but for the time being, we're delighted that she's here. And I really hope some of her uh, shrieks show up on the podcast, because that's, you know, really important part of the aesthetic. (laughs) Okay, what are we doing? All right, so... As some of you might know, Hannah is a big fan of tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. And often such campaigns begin in a small setting with a gathering of people. And so I would like to ask you, where are we beginning today? 
Oh, well, that's very exciting. <laughs> mm, okay, where are we starting? Yeah, you can talk about this space, this neighborhood. Yeah, so... This group of people. Yeah, let's set the scene. This is for... Who is in Iron Dog Books for the first time right now? Incredible. Welcome. Um, for those of you who don't know, Iron Dog started off as a book truck, an iconic book truck, a beautiful bright red book truck. I met Hillary before it was a physical location, and when she told me that they were opening a brick-and-mortar store and where it was going to be, I was like, a bookstore in my neighborhood? Gasp, because I live like three blocks from here. Um, and then proceeded a multi-year campaign to make Hillary be my friend. <laughs> so that I would be friends with my local bookstore owner, <laughs> which is ideal. <laughs> so it feels really special to be here, particularly because ours is a friendship that built over the past three years of the pandemic, which... What an unlikely thing, huh? Making a friend in a pandemic and then that friendship actually like lasting in meat space. Absolutely remarkable. And this book kind of also got written mostly in this pandemic, which is also very weird. Um, my friend Erica was just asking me if it feels real. And I was like, I don't know what real feels like anymore. I'm not familiar with that sensation. Um, <laughs> it feels good. I know what good feels like, so we'll go with good instead of real, because I'm not convinced that real exists. And then, forget it. And then, <laughs> so many of the people who are actually here in this space are the people who I have spent the past rough three years with. Either my literal bubble, shout out to Sonera and Don. Prior to that, my previous bubble, shout out to Nancy and Rachel and baby Sophie. Get out of here, Sophie. <laughs> We're leaving. We've had enough of you. Oh my God, my pen. Thank you. I'm going to fling it away again because I <laughs> talk with my hands really enthusiastically. Um, and of course, my colleagues in publishing who, you know, I navigated the absolutely horrific process of learning how to teach online and then learning how to teach in person in masks with. Um, so yeah, you know, we're here. We're here in my favorite bookstore with a bunch of my favorite people. Wonderful. Yeah. Oh, such a loving. I love it. <laughs> Are we about to go on an adventure? We absolutely can. I won't make you roll initiative. <laughs> there will be no large monsters or traps. Okay. Okay. Uh, Ooh, just no like traps. a lot of effusive praise, affection, those kind of traps. Just, oh, I hate those. Okay. Yeah. I just love traps. Yeah. 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 I gotta sit back. You yeah, look so relax. cool and relaxed. Relax. Like, Let's take oh, it easy. Come, come here, Mike. <laughs> that was weird. It does look like we're about to start a good acoustic set, though. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. Let's just not sing. Yeah, there, there is no accompanying EP to this. I thought this was a tiny book. concert. Yeah, sorry. This is our, this is our cool tiny desk concert. <laughs> yep. You want me to go? I can go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just so happy to be here with you and you because this is such a big deal. How many of you have actually opened up the book, have had a book in your hands and actually felt it? Have you seen the size of this perfectly... This book is such a perfect size. I love size. I write short books. So we need to... It's not just short. It's, the, it's, it's slim and beautiful, and it fits beautifully in your hands. 
I just, even when I got it, I just felt so happy to have it in my hands. And so, of course, all of you will be buying a copy tonight, so you all have your own <laughs> copy if you haven't bought it yet. Um, but I have to say that I feel really fortunate that I got to see a copy of this book before it actually went to press. So I have the added advantage of being able to tell you how amazing this book is. And now I'm going to rant for just a minute about how amazing this book is, if that's okay, because I just think it's such a beautiful book. So I think the thing that will hopefully really excite you about this book is Hannah's voice in this book. It is so pointedly powerful. It is lyrical. And I think it offers a timely series of insights that are going to resonate for everybody in this room. I think the thing that I want to say, and I haven't been able to tell you this personally about why I love it so much, is if I'm really honest, as someone who identifies as a woman of color, I've become quite disillusioned with the work of several white feminists in the last decade. And what Hannah does so beautifully is it made me regain faith. And I felt seen in this book. And it meant so much to me to be able to feel seen in this beautiful book. Um, her engagement with the literatures is so far-reaching. She's able to draw from Audre Lorde one minute, Lauren Berlant the next. And this fluency is really rare to find in a scholar, you know, and be able to speak to pop culture, to be able to speak across disciplines. It's really a rarity, I think. So I'm just so excited to be able to tell you all this because I just love this book so much. Um, one of the best parts of this book is a chapter, the end chapter, where it talks about coming back to care. And we're going to talk about care tonight, right? Because that is one of Hannah's strengths and praxis, is thinking about how to care for all of us. And you do this so beautifully for everybody in this community and in your work. And it's so rare to see that in academic work, right? We have so many academics who actually say they do that stuff, but they do the opposite in practice. <laughs> I mean, let's be clear. It happens all the time at UBC. But we will talk about that another time. <laughs> Recorded. Is this thing on? Is this a, can that get deleted? <laughs> Do I have tenure? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. We'll just we'll just uh, we'll just bleep that out. We'll put an air horn over that. Maybe no. some loon sounds. Yeah. <laughs> nah. Let's be clear. Every single university knows that they all struggle from the same issue. So me naming it is not a big deal. It's not yeah. like they don't know what's going on, right? Um, one of the beautiful things about Hannah's work is her attention to care. And I think, as I said, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But this attention to care and theory and love and loss is so beautiful to me. So I just wanted to say that before we start even a conversation, because this book is really important and it was important to me. Thank so you. thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. It's very nice. Manel is actually one of my peer reviewers, yeah. which, you know, if you've experienced sort of the normal kind of peer review, I'm sure you have a sense of how. Um, loving and embracing receiving a peer review from Manel was. <laughs> like, imagine a person actually like engaging with your work on its own terms rather than trying to prove you wrong. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> but this was easy. And those of you who know me here know I can be super, super tough and I have been tough in the past, but I didn't have to do that because I just felt so happy reading this. And not just because I think you're attending to issues that I care about, but because it's such a generative text, this book. And so... Yay. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Um, okay, I rambled on enough. You can ask the next question. Yeah, so maybe we can like, use peer review as a jumping off point because uh -huh. openness has been so crucial mm -hmm. to a lot of your academic work. Uh, you produced or you hosted a peer-reviewed podcast, which is kind of a huge deal, like a big first in Canadian academia. So tell me a little bit about 
that sort of process for you of doing the work of being in community with your peers as the work is developing, not just sort of mm-hmm. afterwards. Yeah. You know, one of the great pleasures of what my life has been like since I moved to Vancouver is that, um, apologies to the academics in the audience, but almost all of the community that I made upon moving here were not professors. Um, and I can't recommend more strongly as a sort of, <laughs> as a, as a, as a feminist practice, mm. being friends with people who aren't professors. Um, unless you're friends with me, cause I'm a cool professor. Uh, <laughs> Or more generally, just having a community who don't all do the same thing as right. you, who don't all come from the same perspective as you, who aren't all enacting their feminism in the same spaces or the same contexts as you. Because it gets really, really easy, I think, when you are only talking to other people who are doing the same thing as you, to start to both overexpand the significance of very small differences, right? What's that phrase? The something of small differences? It's fine. Um, uh, But also, like, it becomes easy to, to get, I think, a little puritanical about your practice as a feminist, because you aren't actually thinking about the complexity of lived experience. And Luckily for me, when I first started making community in Vancouver, I was making it primarily through um, making a podcast, Secret Feminist Agenda, which was very explicitly a project I started to sucker interesting feminists into being my friends. (laughs) Not that I'm calling myself an interesting And it worked, because a bunch of you suckers are in this room right now. So, yay me. (laughs) But it meant that I was building this community deliberately and through conversation and that as I was figuring out some pretty big, like remember 2016 when Mm -hmm. Trump was elected and then a week later UBC Accountable happened and I had just finished like a PhD in English literature and had like a pretty deep investment in the idea that literature makes people more empathetic. (laughs) And then I was like, oh no, wow, it does not. Yikes. And I was working through these questions, right? Of like, I'm a professor now. What is that going to mean? What am I going to do with my work, with this incredible position of privilege, with this really broken world? What does this look like for me? And I got to work through those questions in conversation and in open. Mm-hmm. And so when I ran up against walls, which I did over and over again, because these are hard questions about how to be in the world, right. I had always people stepping in and saying, I would like to, not I have an easy answer, but I would like to think this through with you. I would like to sit in this complexity with you. And that was a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. Just being in a community of other people who want to sit in that messiness with you and not try to brush it under the rug and not pretend that the world is easier or simpler than it is, but who also are not going to, you know, are not going to try to move past it either. Who are just willing to sort of be there in the, uh, stay with the trouble, to quote Mm. Donna Haraway, Mm. uh, with you. And that, for me, openness 
is indivisible from, from participation in those kinds of communities. Is that the question? Yeah. Great. Absolutely. <laughs> Nailed it. Thanks. Nailed it. Yes, yes totally. Um, I want to go back to like a really, to something that's come up for me is just the title of the book. Mm. Because I got a phone call on Tuesday, I think it was, from a scholar at U of T. And he's like, I'm listening to Here and Now right now on CBC Radio. <laughs> and this amazing scholar's on, Hannah McGregor, and she's talking about a sentimental education. He goes, but I want to know about the title. Because some of you will know the title comes from this Flaubert book and he wanted me to ask you about the title. <laughs> and I said, you know, just fly here. You can come to the book launch. Yeah, but, ask yourself. But maybe you could tell everybody a little bit about why this title, because it's very significant. Yeah, it is. And, okay, it's a really important part of my practice. Even though it's an important part of my practice as a Gemini to lie all the time, it's also a really important part of my practice as an intellectual to not lie about books that I've read. Um, so instead I lie about movies I've seen. Um, you'll never, none of you will ever know. I'm really good at reading Wikipedia plot summaries. You have no way of finding out. Uh, so I have never read A Sentimental Education. Yeah. Um, so, so what it evoked for me, I mean, I was just straight up stealing the title because I thought it was a great title. And what it evoked for me was that sense of what it means to learn through sentiment, what it means to learn through feeling, and also what it means to learn about sentiment. Because one of the sort of, you know, speaking of those sticky intellectual experiences, right? When you sort of just run yourself into a, a thought wall and can't, we've all done that, right? Run <laughs> ourselves into a brick wall of our own ideas. Sure. Um, one of those for me was this idea that reading breeds empathy, which is an idea that bookish people really love. And I think not just because it makes us feel good about ourselves, but because for those of us whose, books, whose lives have been structured through books, books have changed us. They have changed the way we see the world. They have changed the way we understand ourselves in relation to the world. We know that literature matters, and yet we look at highly literate cultures and they're not more ethical cultures. <laughs> in fact, literature and publishing more general has been a major tool of colonialism and imperialism. So what do we do with the reality of the violence that literature has done? Like, how do we sort of think our way through that? And that's kind of where I began with that, like, okay, I want books. Why do I want books to be a thing that made me better? Why does that, why am I attached to that idea? Well, that idea has multiple histories. That idea has a personal history in my own life, the role that books played in my personal education. And then that idea, unsurprisingly, also has a sort of larger cultural history because we don't, our personal histories don't exist in a void. They also exist in relation to these larger histories that we're a part of. So it's not a coincidence that I, a middle-class white girl, was drawn to the idea that reading would make me a more compassionate person mm -hmm. because that is built into the texture of sentimental novels. That's kind of the whole point of them. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you shamelessly stole the title mm. from this like white guy, old white guy years and years and years ago and managed to claim it for yourself in such a beautiful way, like totally taking it and yeah. wrenching it in such a powerful way for all He's of us. Dead. <laughs> we were joking around 
in our in our call before. Remember what we were saying about there's not a, not an old white German male scholar anywhere in this text, and thank God for that. So, yeah. yeah, there's Zero. no Germans in here. I do briefly mention Foucault. I think that's about <laughs> as close as as far as I go. You want to talk about feelings? Yeah, um, yeah. We're getting to that time in the evening. Uh, let's talk about feelings. Good, um, great. The sentimental part of the education. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. So. One of the things that was interesting for me, I was reading this in the book this morning again, is that you talk about how podcasting changed. Let me see if I can find it. You talk about podcasting changing how you, how you feel in your body. You see, every page is a different font. <laughs> I'm chaotic good. <laughs> I love you. You are such a chaos muppet. It's <laughs> true. All right, sorry. It's just a typographical break. Oh, yeah, you work in publishing. Yes. <laughs> um, but you talk about how podcasting changed how you felt in your body, your breathing, mm. your, 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 your feelings. So I'm really, really curious about the, oh, my God, I hate this, the affective dimensions, like the real feelingy feelings so of, come about your work. The especially the whole body move for affective dimensions. Um, especially a book like this. Um, let's talk about the feelings. Whew, the feelings. In this book and about this book. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So for folks who haven't read it yet, it's a feelingsy book. It's also a thinky book, but it's also a feelingsy book. And <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> Yeah, thinksies and feelsies. Yeah, those are the two things that there are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's something I I really liked the version of academia that was about taking all of your feelings and putting them, as Hillary likes to say, in an oubliette, and then just <laughs> piling theory on top of them so they'll never get out. And the wild thing about podcasting is that for a whole variety of reasons having to do with the fact that I started working in the medium with a very close friend mm -hmm. and with very little anticipated audience. So when Marcel and I started making Witch Please, it was just the two of us sitting on a couch handing a microphone back and forth drinking. Like, <laughs> it was fine and we could just cry about... Mm -hmm you know, Harry Potter, because we're cool. Um, and that was fine. And so that was part of, you know, I, how I learned to podcast. That's sort of the voice that I found in that medium. And then also, I mean, let's be frank. I started making Secret Feminist Agenda in 2017 while having just a multi-year nervous breakdown. Like, absolutely. Just, like, UBC Accountable broke me, as I think it probably broke some other people in this room. Um, and I, I, I couldn't figure out how to keep my feelings out of my thinking. It was less that I made a decision to bring them back in and more that I didn't know how to keep them out anymore. I didn't know how to keep them out of my work. I was crying in the office, which is something that I had theorized as being good feminism, but had absolutely <laughs> never done myself. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not interested. Only interested in feelings as an idea that other people do. Um, and 
Then this kind of amazing thing started happening, which is that I realized that by virtue of making myself vulnerable, I opened myself out to richer relationships, to deeper understandings, to uh, the reciprocal gift of vulnerability from the people I was talking to and the people who were listening to the podcast. And the more vulnerable I made myself, I mean, sometimes it got scary, right? The vulnerability came with really, really real risks. Shout out to J-Max for making Margaret out with Leave Me Alone. Um, uh, but it also had just really incredible, really incredible rewards. And even then, there were places I didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. There were places I profoundly didn't want to go. And the place that I most didn't want to go was my mother's death, which feels like a foundational part of who I am as a person, as a feminist, as a thinker, and is one of those ugly facts of my existence that I really, oh, it was deep in the oubliette. (laughs) So, so deep. We had to carve through so much other stuff to get down there. But um, it turned out that getting down there was a really rich and healing experience. Interestingly, almost nobody wants to talk about it in interviews. Except for now, because we are prepared (laughs) with quotes from the book to talk about your mother. Because the specter of the mother is really important in this book. And so few books actually address the question of what it means to be a motherless daughter, right? In this really powerful way. And you address it head on. So when I heard from you that in other interviews you haven't had that kind of question, I was like, oh, we're going to change that tonight and have this <laughs> conversation. Now, a lot of you have not had the chance to read the book yet, and you, of course you will. But I just want to read you this quick little bit of an excerpt to give you a sense of like, the importance and the beautiful way that Hannah's addressing questions of what it means not to have the mother figure in your life at this particular moment. Let me read this, this section just because I think it's so beautiful. On November 20th, 2016... I wrote a Facebook post marking the 16th anniversary of Teresa Joan Penner's death, an anniversary that also marked the moment when she had been dead for more of my life than she had been alive. I wrote, My mother was abrasive. She was loud. She loved people with all of her heart and her body and her voice. She screamed and cried and fought because the world was always worth that energy, because what she believed in was always worth defending. And throughout all that fighting and all that suffering, she maintained a great well of tenderness within her. And then Hannah writes this beautiful line. In that moment, I made a commitment to fight as hard as she did and with as much tenderness. I want to hear from you about that, about this idea of acting with tenderness in the world. And I think a lot of us have been recipient to that tenderness but can you speak more about that? Yeah, the role your mother's absolutely. played in this? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the loss of a parent when you're young. I was 16 when my mom died. She was sick from when I was 8 until when I was 16. She died by suicide, um, which also made it a death that we didn't speak of, one that we really sort of as a family put aside and didn't touch. Um, I still remember at one point trying to get her suicide note back from the police and they said it was evidence and I couldn't have it. 
I never followed up. I don't know, even know if that was true, but ACAB, so. Um, <laughs> but it hardened me because it had to harden me. Because I was 16 and my dad started dating somebody else right away and left town. And I lived on my own in the family home. You know, saw him a couple of days a week. And I needed to get, I needed to get hard and I needed to get independent really fast because I didn't have an adult caring for me. And that, for some time, that hardness was the inheritance of that experience. And it took space for me to try to go back and understand her not fully as an absence, but also as the presence that she was and continues to be in my life. And that meant figuring out how to look at something that was really hard to look at, right? It can feel easier to just not look, to just not, you know, it's a, a loss is like a wound and you just don't want to touch it, right? You ever, I cut off the tip of my thumb while camping a couple of weeks ago. I've been having a really adventurous summer. <laughs> um, and I did, you know that thing where like I chopped and then I knew in that moment and then I just put my thumb in my mouth. And then my friend went and got the first aid kit. And she was like, all right, time to take your thumb out of your mouth. And I was like, mm -mm -mm. <laughs> no, it just stays here. I'm just going to live like this now. <laughs> and that was kind of the feeling, right? Like, oh, I'll just live like this. I'll just put my thumb in my mouth and then we'll just never speak of it again. It'll be fine. Um, but it turns out this is where the metaphor falls apart. Uh, it turns out that actually looking at it meant that I could start to have a relationship with her again. And starting to have a relationship with her again meant that I could actually attend to the things that she had taught me, right? That she, don't, she didn't need to continue to be just an absence, just a loss, because she was also a person with a really rich, interesting life who tried to teach me a lot of really valuable things in the short period of time that we had. And one of those things, and it's not a coincidence that she was sick for eight years. Being sick for eight years changes you. That, and that was, she had, she had this really profound understanding of the world as a place that was full of suffering. And that was, the phrase she always used was more beautiful than it needs to be. And I think about that, like, I'll just be like walking home and I'll just glance out at a field and be like, yeah, well, that's true, huh? It's just, it's really awful a lot of the time, but it's also more beautiful than it needs to be. And that is not something I could have had back if I didn't let myself go back to that relationship with her. Wow. The thumb is still. So, it's, it's, it's healing. It's healing. Yeah, it's getting there. Yeah. You know what? The reason why I'm asking you this is because I feel like there's been this whole new spate of memoirs come out about mother and daughter's relationships, right? I'm sure some of you have seen them. Nowhere near as good as this, I have to say. But the Sarah Pauly new memoir that's come out, uh, Run Towards Danger, and then Lee McLaren's book, um, Where You End and I Begin. 
And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on those particular kinds of memoirs that's come out in terms of the way that it's been marketed and the kinds of stories. I don't know if you've read either one of them, but... Manel, I haven't. And, you know, honestly, the most inspiring piece for me in terms of thinking about how to bring together a meaningful engagement with my relationship with my mother and her loss and bringing that into conversation with the theory that is so much a tool for me in terms of how I engage the world was your piece about your mother and your, and voice, which was a revelatory. So I got to see it's this beautiful piece that's now published. Yes. In the walrus. In the walrus. I see what you're doing here. She's doing the radical reciprocity thing, which is okay. But seriously, generous because Manel gave. You know, I first got to see this the piece delivered, and Manel is an incredible speaker, an incredible performer, and and it was revelatory for me. Like I was sitting there and going, like, oh, you can do this, (laughs) and that you. There, the other moments of oh, you can do this, like Sonia Boone's um, most recent book, What the Oceans Remember was another, it's a, another recent Wilfrid Laurier University Press book, and it's a memoir that is, it's, it's much more a memoir than this is, mm. um, about her family's history that is also about archives and about archival studies and about the question of how we can reconstruct history. Right. And it is a gorgeous memoir, and it was peer-reviewed, and it's scholarly, and it was published by a university press, and I had the same moment of like, Oh, you can do this? Mm. That So it was those works that sort of planted a seed for me mm. in terms of beginning to feel like I could write differently, think differently, bring these stories back in. Mm. I haven't read any of those, and you those sad dead mom memoirs. But I, think, I think it speaks to like these histories of like the way that we write and how what we write inspires other people to write something beautiful. And already I know this book is going to inspire so many people to think about how they write in a very different way. So I think you're paving the way in a really exciting kind of creating opportunities for people, I which I really so. like. Oh, for sure. I mean, I really believe it when I say I'm, I'm, my work is only as good as what people can do with it. Because mm. otherwise, what's the point? Mm. Love. Yeah. That's really... It makes me think, we've had this conversation a lot. We never come to a, like a, a theory about it, but we've talked a lot about mentorship, right? Mm. And so that makes me think a lot about, you know, now you're an associate professor. It's funny, <laughs> just got tenure. Going <laughs> to put sticky labels on all the books that say actually Yeah, if everybody could actually assist- cross out where it says assistant on the back small- and just write in associate, I would really appreciate that. a small that. amendment. But I'm really curious because the idea of a sentimental education is, is for me also about those, those sort of relationships across time and across power differentials. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts about mentorship and, again, what it is that your work can do for others or what you imagine it doing in the world. <laughs> oh, my God. I have no idea. <laughs> I am really interested. You know, the person who actually really got me thinking about mentorship was Andrea Warner, who is here as well, who at one point I was like, yeah, you know, like, I think I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm done with secret feminist agenda for the time being. And she was like, cool, well, what are you going to do with the platform that you have to lift up the voices of others? And I was like, fine, fucking drag me, Andrea. 
But it was just such a clear, like, cool, you have arrived at a point in your career where you now are accountable to build capacity and build platforms for others. And, you know, where that, where that has been particularly important for me is in my podcasting work is like trying to build infrastructure, like just trying to actually take seriously what it means to like create the, the frame for other people to do work that is not the typical scholarly work. But writing a book like this also feels to me like permission, right? Because I read other books that gave me permission to do something that felt scary and kind of impossible. Mm -hmm. And I know now from experience that every time I do something that feels scary, it gives somebody else permission to also do that thing. And so that makes it profoundly worthwhile to do the thing that feels scary and hard mm -hmm. or to do the thing that like, whatever, you know, there's this culture in academia of, of like wild overwork, but sort of like bragging overwork. Like when I was in my postdoc, I had a professor tell me that she had never been on vacation. Oh, never, wow. never. Because serious people don't go on vacations. Because serious intellectuals want to think serious intellectual thoughts every second of every day, <laughs> unremittingly and remorselessly. <laughs> this is why we shouldn't only be friends with each other. <laughs> it's very bad. But, you know, in things as simple as, like, modeling to the graduate students who I employ, like... I will not be working this week. Mm -hmm. I encourage you to also not work this week. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we'll ask for no work from you. Right. If you would like to work this week, you can, but then you have to not work next week. <laughs> like, you know, the, the, you have to actually do the thing. You can't just tell people they ought to do the thing. You can't just say it's important to have good work-life balance. Not me, not me, but you should. You have good work-life balance, but me, I will just work constantly. Because people will get the message that to be successful, they need to work constantly. You know, so you have to actually do the thing if you want to show that the thing is possible. Huge if true. Huge if true. Huge if true. Not for me, but like... Dev, I think extra for you. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of this thing around mentorship for a minute, I want to talk about the relationship the two of you have because it's also beautifully special in lovely, lovely ways. And there's a lot written about this incredibly talented person in the book. So do you want to speak about that? And then we can... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, can I just read this part of the book that's about Lucia? Yes. <laughs> All right, let me see if I can find where it is. It's in... Where do you think it's in? Do you think it's in getting to know you? Do you think it's in relatable? Gosh. Who knows my book better than me? I only know the group chat. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Getting to know you is my... That's fair. Um, oh my god, it's in the index because she's in the index! What genius just said that? 7172. My god. It's like I wrote the index. My god. All right. Okay. When I think of scholarship that engages the uncool by challenging the conventions of critique, I think of scholar and artist Lucia Lorenzi. In May of 2018, Lucia, I'm going to use her first name here as I do with Marcel because she is my dear friend, 
began experimenting with using art to respond to the works of black writers who she didn't get to read as a student, celebrating but also mourning through color and shape what it meant to engage with texts that matter. On May 9th, 2018, she posted a painting to Instagram entitled Still Tender after David Sheriandi's novel Sukiant. Quote, I used gold and copper paints not only because of how they reflect the light, she explained in the caption, but also because they speak to a beauty in woundedness, a kind of gilded sorrow, end quote. Later, in part as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, she shifted to the more minimalist medium of India ink, creating works that represented her experiences of chronic illness, her responses to the pandemic, and the Black Lives Matter protests. One of those paintings went on to become the cover of Zain Yao's book, Disaffected, The Cultural Politics of Feeling in 19th Century America. In the acknowledgments to the book, Zain describes the experience of seeing Lucia's painting. Quote, On April 10th, 2020, during the first COVID-19 lockdown, Lucia shared on Instagram the third in her ink painting series about touch and intimacy during the pandemic. In the caption, she remarked, not sure how to resolve the piece yet, so I'm stepping away from it, turning it around, seeing what works so far. A continent and an ocean away, I was mesmerized by her creative rendition of the paradoxes of intimacy and distance that spoke to my work as I struggled to finish it. Thank you, friend, for generously sharing your gorgeous artwork with me. To me, this collaboration of sorts captures something of the queer of color ethos, femme survival, and black Asian counter-intimacies that informs the feeling otherwises of disaffected. And then these are my words again. The possibilities of intimacy and attachment that Lucia's work opens up, alongside the way it evokes responsiveness and collaboration from other femmes of color, point to a version of critical engagement that isn't about dismantling or clinging to our objects. These works aren't a rallying cry to let people enjoy things without theorizing their enjoyment. They're a recognition that feelings and ideas are not at odds. Sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the greatest gifts that I think you've given me is that you're really good at, like, when you're, if you're at a party with Hannah, Hannah is the best at introducing people with, like, a whole resume that you didn't even know that you had, um, and you just always sound so much better than you think you are. I love talking about how cool my friends are. <laughs> Super good. Um, but I think that one of the interesting things about seeing you take risks in your work was that even as I was leaving academia, I can still do scholarly work through my art, and critique isn't the place that I start. And I think we've had this conversation, all three of us, a lot about relationships and care and just liking stuff as like an, as a legitimate place to depart from having a response to that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just liking stuff is enough. Yeah. Just liking stuff is enough. And that has been like a through line of our friendship mm -hmm. is that while we are sometimes, you know, on the group chat doing theory, we're also the three of us on a different group chat, watching live play Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and, uh, you know, texting each other about how much we like the gay romance. We it's contain very, multitudes. It's very yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. Space, this is the space for complexity of which I speak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and is it not true, Lucille, that, that 
beautiful image that you created is now the cover mm -hmm. of Zine's book, right? Yeah. The Duke University Press book, right? Yeah. yeah. Which goes back to the way that your work is continuing to contribute in really extraordinary ways in the Academy, just to the pleasure of the aesthetics of the cover, which is really such a powerful image. And I really encourage all of you to go look at it because it is such an amazing amazing yeah. image yeah and what a femme intervention to recognize that aesthetics and theory are not mutually exclusive have to have gold on everything it's really <laughs> necessary <laughs> yeah but i think also just like the for me something that i was thinking about in the book it's like yes that you have these complex relationships to books but some of them are just things that you like mm. and they're complicated and they're difficult and they're hard and like your work on which please shows like that, of course, that world is very, very complicated, but just being also being able to sit with something, right? Like, I think that's a, something that I've learned from both of you is how to just sit with something and the response doesn't have to necessarily be, yeah, a critique or effusive praise, but just sort of the acknowledgement that you exist in the world with a book. Yeah. And that's what I imagine your work doing, right? Like, that's what I, I love about sort of the interviews that I've seen is people who are existing in the world with your book. Mm. That's the Toro Moy's description of um, post critique where he says it's just about paying maximal attention to the words on the page. Mm -hmm. But it's like the point isn't that you're like moving beyond critique. The point is just that you're actually spending time with the art itself before you yeah. move on to critique. Yeah. But it's like, hey, we, we love art, right? So maybe you should just actually spend some time with it instead of only ever going to it through the lens of the critical intervention you're trying to make. Love, love. Um, can I ask you something about citational practice and yes. gratitude? Yes, right? absolutely. Because there's a real attention in the book, thinking through why we cite what we cite, how, where we cite what we cite. And I love this idea of citational practice as a form of gratitude. So maybe you could explain to everybody how you articulate this so well. Okay, but could you actually start by telling people about what you do in your classroom? <laughs> citations and your students. Could you, could you do that? What do I do in my class? I don't remember what I do. Where you do, do where you have your students write to oh, yeah. people to express their gratitude for their work? Yeah. So I do this thing. I teach this class, which is called the Politics and the Poetics and the Imagination. And... I'm just tired. I've had a lot of you have this experience where you invite a guest speaker in and they kind of give of themselves for two hours and they walk out and they feel good for a little while, but that's it. There's no kind of radical reciprocity. So my assignment in that class is the students have to write a letter back to one of the guest speakers who's come to the class. And they have to really speak to, not just say, oh, it's great, thanks so much for coming in, but a really thoughtful letter. And it's opened up relationships for the students because some of the people are so moved by the letter that they've started a relationship to think through the role that they can play in their academic life and their writing life. So yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. Yeah. And so there's something like right at the heart of that, of, okay, wild, wild to wrap your head around this, but the theory that you read and engage with was written by real people. <laughs> I know. And I think part of why, why it actually can take some of us some time to get there is that, for so many of us, our education was dead white men. Right. And so why would you think of them as real people? Like they're not, they, they themselves have been pulled out of their context, treated as just these kinds of decontextualized geniuses up on a pedestal. And they've all been dead for a hundred years and everything they wrote was originally in German. So 
you know, why would you think of them as anything beyond a set of ideas? And so in part, it wasn't until I actually started like working through and with scholarship of contemporaries. Mm. And then like you meet them, right? You read Christina Sharp and then you meet Christina Sharp and you're like, these ideas came out of a person. (laughs) And then, you know, I, I started making a podcast and realized that I could just email Sarah Ahmed and ask if she would talk to me wild. And then I got to, you know, sit across a zoom screen from Sarah Ahmed and watch, you know, I could hear the bird song in her garden while she spoke to me. And I was like, Oh yeah, shit. These are people like all of the things that we read were written by people. Absolutely incredible. And that, just that that sort of simple and unbelievably obvious revelation right. just changed how I thought about citation entirely. Mm. Because then it became clear to me in a much more visceral way what I had been taught from early on, which is that making an intervention into a discipline is about participating in an ongoing conversation. Mm. But that was only ever a metaphor for me right. until I actually started realizing that you could just have a literal conversation. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. This is not, it's not metaphorical. You literally are being part of a conversation. And that can be tricky to feel in academic publishing because it's a conversation where I say something and then five years later you (laughs) respond to me. (laughs) Because the timelines are not... (laughs) really conducive to a flowing conversation or maybe we go to a conference and you give your paper and then I would like to talk to you about it but unfortunately the senior professor after you went 20 minutes over time and that was all of the time for the Q&A and we all have to leave because there's only five minutes to the next panel so like we actually don't build a lot of space for conversation into our practice as scholars And that is a profound loss for our actual ability to generate ideas together, but also, I think, for our ability to, like, see each other as humans. Right. I'm curious, then, like, how does that change how you see yourself? Mm. Oh, if you see others as... Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> just question. <laughs> Don't clap. <laughs> I like the question. <laughs> Like, I'm curious. Like, I mean, I know that you've talked before about being sort of professionalized within an inch of your life as a graduate Mm. student. And have these practices given you space to see yourself as more of a person? And what does that look like as sort of an everyday practice? I mean, I hope so. I really hope so. Um, And I hope that it is something that comes through in the way that I do my work now. Um, You know, it's been really important to me in particular to not do that that thing where you know that thing where professors get overly chummy with their students and are like I'm just a guy like you we're just a couple of guys um which I'm always I'm always like okay but you're relating to one another within an incredibly overdetermined institution in which one of you has a um almost not almost, a fully embarrassing amount of power. Right. And the other one has absolutely no power. And we can talk about the reification of power all we want, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, one of us gets to decide who graduates and the other doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I don't 
I think that's one direction you can take the, like, you know, realizing you're a human thing. You can sort of make it, ooh, I said this to Hillary one time. Once you realize you have feelings, you have the, op the choice of whether or not you're going to make those feelings other people's problem. Right. <laughs> Which is a thing that I actually think sometimes when, when people are like, ah, my affect, here, let me do it at you. <laughs> um, right. I think we've all had an affect done at us at some point, and that's not, perhaps not quite as radical as the person doing it likes to think it is. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think genuinely that RuPaul is right and it's very hard to love other people if you don't love yourself mm -hmm. and it's very hard yeah right how the hell are you gonna love somebody else can I get an amen <laughs> <laughs> um and I think it is way easier to be meaningfully kind mm -hmm. when you are kind to yourself mm. right like you just if you push yourself to the breaking point, you're more likely to expect that of other people. If you are constantly cruel to yourself, there's going to be narratives of cruelty in your head that are going to spill out onto other people. And it's so it's both ways, right? That the more I acknowledge that, like, I am a human who is, frankly, after three years of this pandemic, the craziest I have ever been. <laughs> like, just deeply nuts. And that that's just who I am and how I move through the world now. And the more I am compassionate with myself about the reality of like the person I am at this point, the more compassionate I find myself able to be to people around me. But then it comes, like it just comes back, right? Like it, you know, then the more, the more the people around me, respond with their true human selves and in turn make me feel seen and then we all you know feel seen by each other mm. i've got therapy tomorrow but i can just say that i like totally dread that I <laughs> <laughs> it's fun <laughs> oh my god we should um we should probably start to wrap up but we got we got we got, we got another question one more? Last yeah, one question? More? Yeah, do you have one or you want to? Um, you go first. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, I feel like if I didn't mention the word love mm -hmm. at least once tonight, I'd be remiss. Mm -hmm. Because I've been thinking about it in the academy, there's no place for love. As much as I wanted there to be. <laughs> it just feels too often that it's not there. Um, but this book is so suffused with love. It's, it's shot through and animates the entire text. So can you talk about the role of that love? And you can take that in any way you want. Yeah. How that plays a role in everything you've offered us so beautifully. You know, a piece of this book that it's, it's there a little bit. It's a thread. It's not something I've entirely leaned into yet. Who knows? It'll be the next book. No, the next book's about dinosaurs. It'll be the book <laughs> after that. Um, is the fact that my relocation to Vancouver from Edmonton where I went from having a really rich community to moving to a city where I knew just literally this guy. That was it. And I did not let him go. Um, but went from being somebody really embedded in community to somebody suddenly on my own and had made this decision, right? I was like, I'm going to choose my career. 
And we know how welcoming Vancouver is, right? <laughs> Such Holy a welcoming sh- city. The city is so cold. <laughs> it is ice cold. Um, and I lucked into some, some really warm people early on. Um, quite early in my time here, I met Andrea Warner because she invited me onto her excellent podcast, Pop This. And she was making small talk with me and was like, so how are you finding Vancouver? And I was like, lonely. Aww. So lonely. <laughs> and she was like, cool, would you like to come to this party that I'm throwing next week? Truly. And then I was, again, just claws in. (laughs) Just like a cat trying not to go into its carrier, just like... (laughs) You're not getting... You're not... Um, But, uh, you know, part part of what made that, that moment really difficult for me is that shortly before leaving Edmonton, I had just come out to myself and my close community as asexual. Mm. And that was a thing that had been really, really hard for me to wrap my head around because I think I'd known it instinctively for some time, but I was so afraid that it would mean that everybody else in my life was going to get married and have kids and move away and I would be alone. And... In Edmonton, I had built a community for myself that made me feel like I was really part of it, right? That I was, that I, you know, my, my friend and podcast co-host Marcel, when she had her first kid, asked if I would be interested in a co-parenting relationship. Like, we were very seriously investing in the idea of being family. And she said, but you would have to go off the job market. I mean, because that's the reality, right? Like, she, she was like, you can't leave. We're in Edmonton. Right. So you can, we would love for you to be part of our family, but then you have to stay here. And so I was like, I want to try to do this career. Mm-hmm. And so when I arrived in Vancouver and was like, all right, Vancouver, you better be better than the baby I love. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody's wondering why I was dissatisfied with the mountains initially... <laughs> That's, uh, that's, part of, that's part of the context. But it, it also meant that as I was building my community here, I was doing it with this new knowledge of myself and this new knowledge of what it is I wanted out of friendships, right? What I needed my friendships to be. That I wasn't looking... I mean, yes, casual friendships are great and I love a casual friendship, but what I was looking for was family, right. meaningfully. And so I was looking for people who weren't just going to like agree to have dinner with me, but people who like, it's very weird to friend date and to do the thing where you're like, so how, how seriously do you take your friendships? (laughs) No reason. Just ask. I'm just asking. Just asking for a friend. Just asking for a friend, me. But the, the, you know, the other side of that, that really hard, it was a hard couple of years. Um, and now I have just truly the most astonishingly beautiful community in the city. Like so remarkable and so loving and so just like, just a bunch of sexy geniuses. I just, I, like, I can barely even believe it. And, and knowing now that being queer and being ace doesn't mean that my life will be defined by a loss of relationships, but that it actually means it gets to be suffused with love all the time 
in multiple registers in all of my relationships that actually I feel so empowered to lean into, to like just unabashedly love the people I love as much as I do and not feel weird about that, even though sometimes the straights will be like, wow, you are a really good friend. (laughs) When they say it in that way that's like, it's a little weird how good a friend you are. It's like, cool, your life sounds bad. (laughs) I'm gonna go start a commune with with all my weird poet friends. Will our commune have a feminist zine press? Yes, it will. <laughs> You're okay with the zine press, right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'll my bad poetry. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of bad poetry on the commune. <laughs> Bring it. I think in the book, at some point, you talk about being ferocious about care, which mm. makes it related to dinosaurs. Just so you know, <laughs> love and dinosaurs go together. Yeah. Just yeah. saying. Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, and that's what like. I feel like for a lot of my life, I was shy about how intensely Mm -hmm. I loved people Mm -hmm. because it felt unseemly Mm -hmm. because that intensity of love didn't belong anywhere other than romantic relationships and liberating myself Mm -hmm. from that, that idea that like loving your friends too much is like a sign of emotional immaturity. I actually think is a narrative that's often Mm -hmm. attached to that and just being like, Oh, I don't care about that narrative. I'm just going to love the people I love as hard as I want and as loudly as I want. And it turns out that rules. (laughs) All right. Well, I think maybe we should let people stop sitting. How is it really hot where you all are? Oh, look at this great fan. Oh. I am open to questions. Does anybody in this room want to ask any questions? I absolutely didn't think of audience questions. Sanera. Would you say that you love your friends with the intensity that RuPaul loves practice? Oh, my God. Oh. Oh. I would actually say that I love my friends with the intensity that RuPaul loves extracting the trauma out of the contestants on her show. So, like, you ever seen, you know, that moment when... Somebody starts to cry on RuPaul's Drag Race, and you can see RuPaul get, like, six inches taller (laughs) and, like, ten years younger, and it's like, whoa, that's just going right into her. That's how I I love my friends. Yeah. Like a vampire. (laughs) All right, great. So that was the only question. So we're... So we're good. So we're good. Um, I am happy to take questions, but I'm also happy to like sign books and and just and just (laughs) and just chat with people. Easy, Randy. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's enough out of the peanut gallery. Yeah, let's hear it from the dog pound. Okay, well, this has been a... I'm all your moms right now. Hi, Mom! Yeah, shout out to Dina for bringing me this mask that matches my outfit. Like... We love it. And also, just we love recognizing that community care is also an aesthetic. It's beautiful. Um, Yeah, why don't don't 
we why don't we cease the part that is recorded and um and I'll we'll we'll open the door and let some more air in and I will go stand there near Hillary and then you can come to me if you want me to write a thing in your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thanks, Marshall. Thanks to Marshall. Can I get one top pop? Pop, pop. You know, for the men. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.